Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Richheimer, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to Pain Know-How, the official podcast of the online pain medicine program at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, the University of Southern California. I'm the program director. This podcast is dedicated to sharing evidence-based information to enhance the practice of any clinician that treats patients that experience pain. All our speakers are experts in their fields and they will provide listeners with the most up-to-date information. Thank you for listening. Now let's go to today's episode. Hi, my name is Lindsay Reeves and I am an assistant professor of clinical occupational therapy at USC. Today we are going to dive into uh, the occupational therapy lifestyle interventions for pain management. So we're going to focus on a number of different areas, looking at eating, exercise, sleep routines, time management strategies, medication management, um, home safety. We're also going to talk about ergonomics and body mechanics and adaptive equipment. So there's a lot to, to dive into today. So we'll start with eating routines. And with eating routines, Patients that experience pain demonstrate things like decreased appetite, um, whether it's due to pain and not interfering with their appetite or potential medication side effects, um, or they may be overeating in order to cope with pain, almost as an emotional coping strategy to manage the pain. Um, we also see if patients are overweight or obese, this could be something that is further contributing to their joint pain or inflammation. Um, and we see that overweight and obesity are common comorbidities and risk, risk factors for patients with chronic pain. Um, and it's related to greater pain sensitivity. So this is something that we want to be mindful of in the evaluation and as a potential treatment recommendation for patients that are experiencing chronic pain and are overweight or obese. Some patients with migraine and headache um, are able to identify specific dietary triggers that cause their headache or migraine pain, but also um, certain foods can promote inflammation in the body and that can be um, a trigger or an exacerbating factor as well. Um, and then the other thing we see is that pain can oftentimes be a limiting factor for things like engaging in meal preparation or grocery shopping activities, and that can influence somebody's food choices. Um, and so that's another thing that in occupational therapy we want to be addressing. When we're um, assessing a person's eating routines, the things that we're really wanting to look at are their food quality, the quantity of food that they're eating, and the frequency that they're eating, because all of those things are gonna influence um, nervous system regulation. Now, when these factors are present, um, decreased appetite, emotional eating, being overweight, any of these things are, are present, how this impacts a person is that it can lead to impaired energy levels and it can lead to further dysregulation of their nervous system. So because of that, um, we want to make sure that we're addressing some of those factors. So there's a number of eating routine strategies that we will dive into with patients 
depending on what their needs are. So like I said, frequency, quality, and quantity are kind of the three areas that we want to look into. So with eating routine frequency, um, you know, what we're working towards when we think about nervous system regulation is optimal blood sugar regulation. Um, and what we know is that when people are eating at a consistent frequent rate, every about every two to three hours, their metabolism is working to regularly break down their food and create this stable release of blood sugar levels. So that's going to promote regulation in the body. That's, that can help manage pain and manage energy levels. Um, on the other hand, though, when people skip meals or go really long periods of time without eating, that can promote dysregulation in the body and cause more fatigue. Those drops in blood sugar levels can make someone feel really fatigued or um, can make their pain worse. So that, that frequency is something we want to assess and possibly work towards increasing that frequency. Now with that, I do want to have a side note that um, you know there's a lot coming out and a lot more information about intermittent fasting. And, um, and I think that there can be benefits with that too. So being mindful that these eating routine approaches are going to be very individualized. Um, with eating routines, a lot of times I'm collaborating with maybe a nutritionist or a dietitian that the patient might be working with. Um, as an OT, it's not within our scope of practice to prescribe a specific diet for a patient to adhere to, but we're really working towards um, making recommendations about high quality, healthy eating routine habits. Um, but again, not necessarily prescribing a specific diet for, for a patient to stick to. That, that wouldn't be within our scope of practice. Um, so that's, that goes into the eating routine and, and blood sugar regulation. And for migraines and headaches specifically, that low blood sugar, those skipping meals, that can be a really big trigger for a lot of patients. Um, also looking at food choices, uh, that quality piece. So um, we're going to talk about dietary triggers in a minute, but um, really evaluating if certain foods um, are potentially contributing to their pain, inflammation, um, headaches, things like that, and, and working towards eliminating any food that, that a patient does identify as a potential risk factor. Also thinking about things like liquid intake and fluid intake, um, making sure patients are staying hydrated. Um, things like caffeine and alcohol can impact um, nervous system regulation because of how it promotes vasoconstriction and then vasodilation. Um, and so assessing, again, if, if that's something a person's consuming and potentially recommending reducing the intake of those things. Uh, to support any challenges with meal preparation or planning, uh, in occupational therapy, we might problem solve through simple meal preparation strategies, which could be things like purchasing pre-chopped vegetables or, um, you know, creating sample menu options and meal ideas of a simple meal versus a more complex meal so that on a day where pain or fatigue is higher, maybe they're going to that one step meal of heating something up in the microwave compared to a day where they might feel like they have more energy or are experiencing less pain. And maybe they're going to prepare 
um, a few dishes that day. So, so helping them kind of uh, evaluate the differences in energy demands between different types of meal options. Um, also giving patients tools like um, grocery shopping tools uh, and to-do lists, as well as meal planning tools. Let's plan out the meals for your week so that um, you can manage your pain and energy effectively. Um, I mentioned that if, if there are dietary triggers, triggers present, we might work on an elimination diet. Um, and then the weight management piece. So if, if a patient is overweight or obese and the patient is identifying that as something that they want to work on, that is something that we also address in occupational therapy is assisting with um, long-term, um, slow, small, sustainable changes that patients can make to help them manage their weight a little bit better. Through high quality eating choices, these frequency changes, liquid intake, things like that. Um, and then lastly, if, if pain is interfering with the ability to engage in meal preparation and cooking, we might also do some education and training around adaptive equipment and pacing strategies that can help them engage in those tasks a little bit um, more easily. So with dietary triggers, these are some common um, triggers that people with pain, migraines, and headaches have reported. Um, and I'll kind of quickly just explain why some of these things could potentially be dietary triggers. The thing about dietary triggers is, you know, it's not true for everyone. Not everyone um, has that sensitivity necessarily. Um, and so again, it's very individualized kind of helping patients figure out are they consuming any of these things in high quantities? Is it something that they are interested in eliminating and then supporting them through the process? So caffeine is something that um, can cause vasoconstriction. And then when ca caffeine is out of your system, then there's this sort of wearing off effect um, and rebound swelling that can occur. And so that can cause pain. Um, and so the best way to approach that is to try to reduce that or eliminate that from a patient's diet. Um, chocolate uh, can contain migraine triggering chemicals in it. Um, MSG is a chemical additive that um, is used to keep foods fresh and it's um, seen in a lot of processed foods and that can be a trigger for people. Processed meats and fish can contain things like nitrites and nitrates, um, as well as um, chemicals called tyramine and glutamate. And these things can accumulate with age. And so fresher foods, fresher meats are better to prevent this buildup of these, these chemicals. Um, cheese and dairy products also can have more tyramine in it. That can be a, a trigger. Um, nuts also contain tyramines. Um, alcohol, um, it can have an accumulation of um, similar chemicals that can be triggering for people. And, and again, it has um, depressive effects on a person's mood. So that's another thing we want to be mindful of. Um, fruit juices can be high in tyramine, um, aspartame, and there's so many others. And again, it's very individualized. 
So the elimination process is like once a person identifies that maybe there's a food they do want to eliminate, um, we, we try to support them and encourage them to remove that from their diet for at least four weeks. And then um, if they want to reintroduce it to determine if it's a trigger, at that point after having eliminated it from their diet for at least a month, when they reintroduce it, it'll be kind of clear whether or not that was triggering for them. Also thinking about anti-inflammatory diets. So there's more and more information about how the, how our gut health and inflammation can be linked to a number of chronic conditions and, and chronic pain is one of them. Um, something to understand about digestion is digestion is a part of our rest and digest system, part of our parasympathetic nervous system. And for somebody that is living with chronic pain and their nervous system is more often in that fight or flight response, what that means is the time that our body would typically be in the digestive phase, it's not spending as much time there because we're in that fight or flight response. And when our body is in fight or flight, digestion isn't a priority. It's not the most urgent need. Um, of our, our physiological system. And so over time, that's why a lot of times chronic pain, people with chronic pain will report digestive issues and challenges, whether it's IBS, um, leaky gut syndrome, because our digestive, their digestive system over time is not functioning properly um, because of being in that fight or flight sympathetic nervous system activation. And so we see impairments in digestion. Um, we tend to see things like reduced stomach secretions of digestive enzymes, impaired blood flow to the stomach and intestines. Um, and so what can end up happening is food then doesn't get broken down properly. And these undigested, pro undigested proteins um, are, can potentially enter the bloodstream. This is where leaky gut can, can occur. And that can cause inflammation in the body. So gut health is really important. Um, and that's why addressing these eating routines is, is an important component of these lifestyle factors that could be contributing to pain. Um, now, there's also recommendations to reduce intake of pro-inflammatory foods. So if, if patients are having those digestive issues and inflammation could be a factor, we want to reduce the intake of foods that are going to further promote that inflammation. So listed here are some of those pro-inflammatory foods, um, as well as some anti-inflammatory foods, things like tomatoes, fruits, nuts, healthy fats like olive oil, leafy greens, um, fish, um, so those are sort of the, um, alternatives and replacements that we want to help patients make that transition towards. And then the other thing about, um, eating routines and promoting blood sugar regulation is looking at the quality of foods and the macronutrients and helping patients understand that. Um, the intake of macronutrients and how those things can influence blood sugar levels. So when a patient only intakes a carbohydrate, it's going to cause more of a spike and a crash in their blood sugar levels. But when we combine a carbohydrate with a fat, 
um, a high quality carbohydrate with a high quality fat, it's going to cause more of this stable release of blood sugar levels. And that's going to help to manage fatigue and prevent that sort of crash feeling when we maybe eat like a donut and uh, an hour later we feel that crash for example so that's another thing we can help patients do is figure out what are some examples of meals and snacks that have these combinations of high quality macronutrients that um they enjoy eating that they enjoy preparing and then helping them again create you know a meal plan for the week that they can that they can stick to. So those are all of the um, eating routine strategies that we might go over with a patient, again, depending on what their needs are. And then um, physical activity is another um, health management routine that we really want to support people to engage in and help them establish a healthy exercise routine that matches their physical abilities. So from the patient education piece, we will start with just explaining the benefits of physical activity, not just for pain, but overall health and well-being. Um, for pain specifically, we do know that engaging in exercise helps to release those endorphins, which are our body's natural painkillers, so it can help with pain management. Um, it's gonna help with the management of stress and knowing that with chronic pain, a patient is more likely in that fight or flight response more often. So it's important that we manage stress and cortisol levels. It can support sleep routines. Um, it can have this secondary effect of encouraging healthier eating patterns, uh, improving mental health and emotional health, cognitive function, fatigue and energy management. Um, thinking about just conditioning and strengthening that um, physical activity can provide increased functional performance and improved mood and quality of life. So um, providing this education and having patients start to think for themselves, like what is their reason for wanting to engage in exercise? What are the potential benefits that they're hoping to, to seek out of establishing a physical activity routine? And so in occupational therapy, what we work on um, is help, helping that with, with that routine establishment and helping the patients find that type of physical activity that works for them. So finding that just right balance, what, it, what type of exercise is safe and effective for them and helping them grade their exercise plan in a way that isn't going to cause a pain flare up. One of the, the things that I hear a lot from patients is this fear of exercise, that they aren't going to be able to tolerate it. And the last thing that I want to do is, you know, set some goals around exercise and a patient jumps into it a little bit too quickly and it causes a flare up and then they never want to exercise again. So this grading and the pacing with exercise is such an important component um, and an important role of occupational therapy to support the patient in that way. Um, now, oftentimes, in at least the work I do, a patient is also seeing physical therapy, and they may be having they they may have a home exercise program that's been prescribed to them. So another component of of my role might be to help a patient 
implement that home exercise program, really create a routine around when they're going to engage in their physical therapy home exercise program. Um, and so that's where collaboration is, is really beneficial. Um, exercise pacing strategies that can help facilitate successful engagement are things like staying hydrated throughout the, the exercise, using proper body mechanics, um, starting slow with a short duration, low intensity, and then gradually increasing, and really training the patient for themselves to do that problem solving and, and grading by modifying the duration, the intensity, the distance, the frequency, um, and, and seeing that increase over time as they improve their tolerance. Um, avoiding overheating, making sure that they're fueling their body with enough food and nutrients before or after exercise, and implementing things like warm-up and cool-down routines. Um, the other thing I think that's important to uh, educate patients about and encourage them is that um, as they start a new exercise routine, there's going to be a difference between um, expected sort of pain and soreness from trying something new versus a flare-up. And um, I think setting up those expectations from the beginning is also important that, yeah, you might feel a little bit sore and that's expected, but that type of pain or soreness should resolve somewhat quickly um, versus a, a flare-up. Some supports for routine establishment with physical activity. Um, I said this previously, but helping the patient identify their own why. Why do I want to establish an exercise routine? And setting up those intrinsic motivating factors as well as extrinsic motivating factors. Maybe there's a reward system in place or um, you know, maybe they establish a routine with a friend or a family member that is another sort of motivating way of getting engaged. Um, helping patients schedule and prioritize exercise routines. A lot of times I hear, I just don't have time for it. Um, but the reality is we have time for the things that we prioritize. So helping patients just figure out when are they going to engage in exercise. Um, like I just said, educating them about the expected response to physical activity. Yeah, you might feel a little bit tired and a little bit sore initially, but that's expected. Um, helping patients put accountability supports into place, uh, and, and then supporting the implementation of, of a PT home exercise program as well. So really in OT, it's that, it's that behavior change piece, it's that routine establishment piece that we're working towards. Because a physician can say, you know, you need to be doing more exercise and more movement. But without, you know, these factors and supports in place, it, it can be really challenging for a patient to actually implement those changes. Some diagnosis-specific physical activity recommendations. Um, what the research and literature shows is for osteoarthritis, um, for that pain condition, strength training had the largest improvements for pain, disability, physical function, stiffness, and range of motion. For fibromyalgia, um, more of those like mind-body exercises, tai chi, qigong, yoga, and aqua therapy. Um, have been shown to be most effective. And then for um, things like migraine and headache pain, research has shown that 30 minutes of aerobic exercise can really help with prevention. And again, depending on what the person's pain condition is, you know, looking into the literature and evidence of what is the, the recommended 
type of exercise um, so that they can be aware of that as well. Not, not to say that that's the only exercise that they can do, but it's good for the patient to be aware of what the literature shows as well. Sleep is another area um, that is very commonly affected by pain. Um, I often hear patients, because of their pain, either have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, and this can lead to greater pain sensitivity and greater risk for the chronicity of pain. Um, and then we can also think about, well, if they're not sleeping well, they're probably more fatigued and maybe they have a harder time managing their stress because they're sleep and they're sleep deprived. So there's all of these kind of compounding effects of that. Um, there's some research that approximately 20% of people living with chronic pain report at least one symptom of insomnia. Um, and people with pain who have trouble sleeping report higher levels of pain, longer pain duration, and greater levels of anxiety and, and depression, which results in impaired physical and psychosocial functioning. So it's so important that we address any sleep impairments. Um, and the reason sleep is so important is this is a time where um, there's a regulation of hormones happening, human growth hormone, cortisol gets re-regulated while we're sleeping, um, our metabolism regulates through the night, which is important for regulating our appetite and our weight during the day. Um, it's important for memory and emotional health, concentration, motor function, um, our immune system, fatigue levels, energy levels, and then it also just helps to reduce the risk of chronic health conditions. So sleep is such an important factor. And um, what we do in occupational therapy, there's a number of sleep strategies to help patients improve their, um, their sleep routines. So sleep hygiene uh, is focuses on establishing effective sleep preparation routines to gradually decrease the stimulation of activities prior to sleep and to prepare the mind and body for a restful state. Um, it's really important that we work with patients on identifying what activities increase their alertness level and what activities promote relaxation and reduce stimulation so that they're developing an effective sleep preparation routine. Um, so helping them establish a wind down routine things like that. Sleep hygiene is really the self-care around sleep. Um, stimulus control involves not doing wakeful activities in bed and not spending more than 20 to 30 minutes in bed at night, not sleeping. So if a patient's in bed and they're awake and they're doing a lot of activities, whether they're on their phone or maybe they're doing work in bed on their laptop, um, those activities kind of signal our brain to associate our bedroom and our bed with staying alert. Um, and so this conditioned arousal response occurs when our brain starts to make that association between bed and a wakeful state. And that can make it difficult to sleep at night. And it's the reason why it's important to educate patients on the importance of moving from their bed if they aren't having, if they're not able to fall asleep. Self-regulation training, um, so these are strategies that aim to improve parasympathetic nervous system activation to elicit that relaxation response um, because when individuals experience stress as a result of not being able to sleep, 
um, we really want to make sure we're doing something to turn off that fight or flight and turn on that relaxation response. So engaging in relaxation techniques like deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation before bed, those are things that we want to um, help patients establish in the, as part of that like wind down routine. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia um, is a method of treating insomnia that involves stimulus control, sleep hygiene, and sleep restriction. Um, sleep restriction is the process of limiting the duration of sleep opportunity um, to the average amount of sleep that someone is reliably able to produce. And so um, this involves doing some sleep tracking and some calculations to determine uh, what the right amount of sleep is and to kind of set a consistent schedule. Now, not all occupational therapists are trained in CBTI, but it's something that we can get training in and, and we do get training in. And this is um, a very tailored approach to helping with, with sleep impairments and insomnia specifically. It is important to note that it's contraindicated for patients with epilepsy, bipolar disorder, or fall risk. So that's something to be aware of. Um, and in your reading this week, one of the, the things that it highlights is the CBTI group. They demonstrated improvements in things like sleep quality, latency, duration, efficiency, and disturbances. Um, so there's a lot of good evidence supporting CBTI. Um, so, and so, and then one other kind of strategy we might address if a person's reporting, um, you know, waking up to use the bathroom often, whether it's because of urinary urgency or incontinence during sleep, we might look at bladder management strategies to reduce that frequency of waking through the night. This is an example of that consensus sleep diary that we might use with a patient if we were doing CBTI and um, working on that sleep restriction component, which is unique to CBTI. Um, but even if we weren't doing that, sleep tracking and just helping patients build awareness of their sleep patterns, um, this can be a helpful tool for that as well. Patients will also use things like their Fitbits or their Apple Watch. Um, or apps on their phone to help understand their patterns in sleep because that too could be another, it's just another information tool that's going to help them make decisions. If they reflect on their sleep the night before and they realize it wasn't a good night of sleep, maybe that helps them understand they might be more at risk for a migraine that day or maybe they need to reschedule certain activities because they feel more fatigued because their sleep patterns weren't great the night before. Um, so tracking is always always a useful tool. Other sleep hygiene strategies, um, again, educating patients that sleep is really dictated and controlled by two things, homeostasis and circadian rhythms. And with homeostasis, essentially from the time we wake up, our body is working to build this drive for sleep that accumulates throughout the day as we expend energy and we engage in activities so that at the end of the day, we have this high sleep drive, this high need for sleep, which is going to support a person's ability to fall asleep at night. Um, and circadian rhythms, just understanding the cyclical changes that occur over a 24-hour period, both physiologically and just thinking about the changes of the sun and the moon. And when it's light out, we want to be doing things that are active and alerting and stimulating. And when it's dark out, we really want to be transitioning to um, relaxing, calming, um, restorative activities. So 
some of those sleep hygiene strategies we'll work through with patients are maintaining consistent sleep-wake schedules, making sure they're doing enough activity during the day to expend that energy, avoiding stimulating activities before bed, making sure they're getting enough sunlight exposure, preparing wind-down routines and creating successful wind-down routines for patients, um, engaging in relaxation before bed, also assessing a person's environment. A lot of times there can be environmental factors that are barriers to sleep, um, CBTI, and, and yeah, and then again, modifying sleep environment. Another factor with sleep is looking at sleep positioning. So patients might report that they um, have a hard time falling asleep because of pain or they're waking up in pain. And so we might work through some positioning strategies um, using pillows in different locations to promote neutral alignment. Um, so for example, with low back pain, placing pillows under their knees, if in supine or in between their knees, if they're sidelined, because that's going to help create a neutral spine to reduce any low back pain. Uh, with migraines, headaches, and neck pain, we tend to explore things like cervical pillows or towel rolls that can create um, additional support for their cervical spine. Um, so again, we might have patients take pictures of what that looks like um, and make recommendations of how to achieve a more neutral, comfortable position. Um, here are just some other positioning supports that might be recommended, uh, whether it's a wedge pillow. Um, this is one of my favorite ones, a pregnancy pillow, because it's a full body pillow that um, you can achieve you know, this sideline posture with something in between your knees, something in front of you to position your arm in the right posture, and that cervical neck support. So um, that's a fun one to recommend. And then this is an example of a cervical pillow as well. Um, so again, helping patients explore what's gonna be the most comfortable position for them to reduce that pain onset. So the next or another area we might address with patients is time management. And this is another one, I think similar to like activity pacing that I find to be a really foundational skill set. Um, helping patients manage their time more effectively so that they are pacing themselves better throughout their day and their week and throughout their activities. Um, to also help manage and prevent unnecessary stress. Um, and to also increase their awareness of pain triggering risk factors. A lot of times I'll ask a patient, you know, how are you with managing your time? And, and they might report, oh, I'm really good at managing my time at work or managing my children's schedules. But when they think about time management for themselves, we're not always um, prioritizing that as much or as often. So you know, just, it seems like such a simple tool and strategy, but it's a skill that we don't always practice effectively. And so we'll work through strategies like scheduling, prioritizing, and organization with patients. Um, before jumping into the strategies, I often engage patients in that self-analysis component of recognizing what are the barriers to managing time effectively. Pain is often a common barrier where, a patient might make a plan for something and have to 
change it, cancel it, modify it. So pain is commonly reported as a potential barrier, but other things like procrastination, taking on too much, difficulty saying no or delegating tasks to other, other people. Um, and things like that can then put patients at risk for overscheduling, overexertion, causing a flare-up. So that's why time management can be such an important skill set to make sure um, patients are, are doing appropriately and effectively. Um, some of the specific strategies that we might dive into with patients are things like organization. So you know, setting aside time to make a plan for the day and being clear about what needs to happen for the day. Creating to-do lists so that we're eliminating so much of the cognitive effort of remembering all of the things that we have to do. Another energy conserving strategy. Um, helping patients be a little bit more specific in their, in their um, scheduling of tasks. So instead of, you know, scheduling time to run errands, actually being specific about where they need to go and what specific errand, because that's going to help them more accurately assess the amount of time that certain activities take. Um, and things like breaking tasks down into smaller chunks. Prioritizing strategies. Um, as part of a pacing strategy, prioritization is really, really important. So making sure that patients are clear about what is highest priority for them on that day or that week and actually numbering them or ranking them in some way. Um, delegating tasks, uh, color coordinating based on category. Um, so going back to that pacing strategy of activity shifting, you know, we might color coordinate based on low, moderate, or high energy demands or the category work, personal leisure activities so that we can visually see is there a balance in the week. Um, eliminating low priority items, increasing efficiency to avoid burnout, and making sure they're keeping their to-do list with them so that they can cross things off their list. And then lastly, scheduling. Um, thinking of an ideal routine. We often tend to um, schedule the, the tasks in our day that have to happen, like appointments or deadlines. But what I often will do with patients is let's actually start with the self-care routines. When are you eating throughout the day? When are you going to get that exercise in? At what time do you need to start winding down to best prepare for sleep? Let's put those things in the calendar first. And then, because they take time and they take energy, so we need to account for them. And then let's fill in the time that we have available that's left with the other priorities and tasks for the day. That way they're less likely to overdo it and they're prioritizing those self-care routines that we're working on implementing and improving. Um, creating consistent routines, avoiding overscheduling, um, maybe leaving time open for those unexpected situations, making sure to account for things like travel time and the time that it takes to prepare for activities, um, and avoiding perfectionism and, and things like that. Now, another component of time management is really thinking about lifestyle balance overall. Um, and this can also go back to making sure we're not overdoing it in any one category. So kind of shifting the idea of, I don't have time to do everything that I want and need to do in my day to finding ways of making more time with the time that we have. 
Um, this is an example of a balance wheel activity that we often will do with patients, which does that color coordination based on category of productivity, rest, play, and self-care. And I'll prompt patients to, you know, color in the hours of the day and what you would typically be doing. So we get this visual representation of how a person's time is being utilized. And then based on that, doing some self-analysis and self-reflection to think about does that look balanced? Does that feel balanced? And what changes might you want to make? Another area we will work on with patients is medication management. Um, you know, whether a patient is not taking their medication at the recommended time and frequency or the way that it's being prescribed, um, or maybe there's medication side effects that they're reporting and complaining about. What we want to help patients do is establish regular routines um, with the use of external cues, um, helping them manage prescription refills so that they avoid running out of their medications and not causing a flare-up. Um, those are some examples of, of ways that we might support a patient in medication management. Um, using memory aids, again, scheduling time management strategies, modifying their environment so they're remembering to take their medications more easily through the use of a pill box. Um, there's also some great pill boxes nowadays that actually have like cueing and prompting and sounds that indicate it's time to take your medication um, and make it very clear whether or not patients have taken their medications. Um, using some tools to help manage prescriptions communicating with their physicians about medication side effects or the need for refills. Um, and then also, you know, a big one with medication management is just the decision-making around when to use medications. Um, we really want to work on using medications at the right timing so that they're most effective. For an example that comes to mind is for migraines. Um, a lot of times patients will wait as long as possible before taking an abortive migraine medication, but that really impacts the effectiveness of it. And so we want to help patients look out for early warning signs, take their medication sooner so that it improves the effectiveness of it and actually reduces the amount of medication that they have to end up taking. Cognition is another area we might dive into. Um, for so many reasons, pain can result in symptoms of brain fog, difficulty with memory, attention, focus. Being in pain all the time is distracting. So if a patient's reporting any cognitive challenges, um, we might work on any one of these strategies. So compensatory strategies, whether that's the use of assistive technology, our phones, apps, things like that, or putting visual or auditory cues in place. Um, the use of a structured daily routine can really help to reduce um, variability and unexpected things and that ha the habitual routine of our, our daily activities can help compensate for cognitive challenges. So the time management piece is really important. Um, grading activities um, over time and task simplification and elimination are some examples of cognitive strategies. Other considerations might be looking at some of those other lifestyle factors, things like diet, engaging in regular exercise, that routine adherence, um, managing stress, all of those things can make cognitive impairments 
worse. So if we can improve those areas, it can help with cognition as well. Um, and then sensory strategies. So sometimes you, the use of um, alerting strategies and regulating sensory strategies can be useful for patients as well. Another area we'll look into our home evaluations. And the reason we do this in occupational therapy is to prevent falls and decrease the risk of falling, um, to improve a person's ability to engage in their ADLs and IADLs with less pain, um, and to assess any environmental factors that might influence pain. Um, the reason this is important is because a common pattern we see is that pain can lead to fear avoidance behaviors, decreased activity, therefore muscle weakness and deconditioning, and that fear of falling. And fear of falling can lead to further inactivity, which can lead to social isolation, depression, which can make pain worse. So it's a cycle. And something to know about fear of falling, it's a, it's a very big indicator of a person's risk for falling. If their fear of falling is high, um, it increases their risk. Similar to that, we will also work on body mechanic training and ergonomic tra ergonomics training with a patient. Um, this might be something a patient's doing in physical therapy as well. So again, there might be some overlap, but we want to look at how people are using body mechanics in their everyday activities, doing laundry, cooking, cleaning, um, childcare activities, and just making sure they're not um, doing things in a way that are making their pain worse. Um, and then also incorporating pacing strategies throughout those things. So, um, you know, this is an example of poor bending technique because it's placing additional muscle strain, promoting spinal, spine misalignment, um, incre increasing the use of smaller muscles rather than larger muscles. And so if patients are doing things in this way, it can definitely make their pain worse. So we educate them about some body mechanic principles, keeping feet hips width distance apart, using larger muscles, maintaining a straight back when lifting, um, keeping objects as close to your belly button as needed or as possible so that it's reducing the overall load. So those were a lot of lifestyle factors um, that we covered today. Uh, and depending on what the patient needs are, we might go through all of those things. We might only focus on eating and exercise or only on medication management, but um, hopefully that gives you all a, a good picture of all of the different lifestyle areas that we can and do address in occupational therapy. Um, so thank you guys and have a good, good day. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Pain Know-How. If you want more information about our online programs, please visit our website at painmed.usc.edu or send an email to us at painmed.usc.edu. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.